If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. I forgot to look and see what page it is in the uh, chairback Bible, so if somebody finds it, you can shout the, shout the number out. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Eight ninety-three. Thank you. Should have remembered that from last week. This morning we are looking at a continuation of a text where Jesus has been in the tabernacle or in the temple. He's been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and as he's been gathered there, uh, he has uh, he has approached. Uh, midweek, mid-feast, he approached, we saw last week, in the middle of the feast, uh, and he began to speak and, and interact with those religious leaders, telling them that he didn't come of himself, but he came from the Father who had sent him, and, and then calling them to have faith in him, really, to see him as the one whom God the Father has provided to bring salvation To all those who would believe, he is God's provision and God's way of salvation. And so that was last week in the middle of the feast. But then this week we come to the end of the feast and the the text really kind of moves along in in, in three scenes. But I want to spend most of our time this morning developing the first scene. And the second and third scene of the text, we will just kind of, we'll look at them and see them as, uh, as, as application or uh, see them as, uh, as truths that we, can, uh, that we can walk away with, practical application. But really in the text this morning, beginning in verses 37 through 39, Jesus is speaking about being the fountain of living water saying that from him the rivers of living water truly flow, and they go to every believer. And so the title of the message this morning is The Fountain of Living Water. And I I want us to see this morning in this text, just real simple, real simple, that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. And I know we've said that from many texts, and we see that in many texts. We see it here this morning Very simply, very straightforward. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. And what that means is, there is no other person who is the giver of eternal life. Jesus is the only one. The Christ of Scripture is the only one who gives eternal life. He has been ordained and sent by God the Father to declare the coming of the kingdom of God. And He is the one through whom God delivers the world and redeems man from sin. And that is the point of what Christ is speaking and saying as he comes to the last and final day of the tabernacle, of the feast. Consequently, when we see that Jesus is the giver of eternal life, I think the challenge for every true disciple of Christ is to recognize that we have been given, as we sang about a moment ago, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a means of living and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Every believer has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within as a means of living and proclaiming. If we are believers in Christ, that means we are disciples of Christ. The calling for the true disciple of Christ is to live in submission to the Holy Spirit of God, following and being led by God 
through his spirit. So we saw last week the challenge, are we willing to do the will of God? The question we come to this week is really an invitation that Jesus gives to all who are, are listening. And that invitation begins scene one, where he says, anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. For the one who thirsts, he is to come and he is to drink. So look with me in verses 37 through 39 and let's read together. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us to see the wonderful and rich truth of what it means for us now that you have been glorified. Help us to see your glorious truth in your word. Help us, God, give us minds by your Holy Spirit's illumination to understand and to comprehend the simplicity of the gospel. We've we've already seen it this morning. It displayed. We've already sang about it this morning. Help us, God, to, to help it to sink down within our hearts. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in the truth of your word. And we ask you, Lord, to give us insight. Give us hearts to love your word, minds to understand, and wills to live it out and apply it in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every every morning during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest, they would march from the temple down the steps through the water gate, going toward south in the city, toward the pool of Siloam. And every morning of this feast, they would do this, and they would be carrying a golden pitcher with water. And as or they would be carrying a golden pitcher, rather, that they would fill with water. And once they filled it, they would return to the temple. So they'd arrive at the, at the pool of Siloam, they'd fill it with water, and then they would, they would return to the temple. But as they filled the pitcher from the pool, the choir that was in procession with them would begin chanting, or would chant Isaiah twelve thirteen, which says, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, God's prophecy for his people. When the procession reached the water gate at the south side of the temple, and when they were returning to ascend the temple mount, three blasts from the trumpet, the shofar, it would, it would resound through the air. And in the midst of this resounding, all the pilgrims who were following in the procession, they would listen and hear the choir as they began to sing the Hallel, they began to sing the Hallel Psalm 113 through 118. And as they would begin to sing, they would, they would work their way up to Psalm 118. And when they hit Psalm 118, it was the climax of this worship time. And all of the pilgrims that were gathered there, in their right hand, they would have three branches bundled together. One would be the palm branch, one would be a willow, and the other would be a myrtle. And and they would all be gathered together. And in the left hand, they would have a citrus branch. And when they hit Psalm 118, the people would raise those branches and begin shaking them. 
And after Psalm 118 was finished, then they would begin crying out three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. This was a a praise and worship time for the people of Israel. This was a joyous occasion as they gathered. They were excited for the branches. They symbolized the wilderness wandering and their their being in the booths. And and then the citrus branch in their left hand symbolized the, the fertile uh, crop that had just been brought in, the harvest. And so they would worship the Lord, and the high priest at that point would ascend, and he would stand over, stand at the altar, and then he would pour the water out as an altar, uh, as a sacrifice on the altar. And as he poured the water from the pitcher, it would be a joyous eruption of celebration. The Mishnah records the ceremony was so joyous that it says, whoever has not seen the water drawing has not seen real joy in his life. Those first six days, that happened the same way. But on the seventh day, the last and greatest day of the feast, the procession would occur seven times. Much like what we saw this morning, through baptism being a visible sign, this ceremony acted as a visible sign. It was a visible prayer to God from his people, offered by his people as a plea for rain in the midst of the dry season that followed from the harvest. But it was also a ceremony that was set in rich symbolism, and it symbolized God's good provision of water that was brought forth from the rock to quench the thirst of his people. And it would also quench the thirst of their animals. If maybe you don't recall, in in Numbers 28, God tells Moses, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield water. Here's the reason. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. It was so that God would provide. They would see God as their Water supply. They would see him as providing water through the rock. And so here's the picture in this ceremony. The water flowed from the sacrificial rock, the altar, the temple. Gary Burge in his commentary states, In a drought-stricken land, it was a spectacular vision of water. Life-giving water flowing from God's life-giving temple. It's in the midst of this sevenfold procession on a hot, dry day where they are pleading and praying for rain, where people have now descended and ascended on the steep temple mount seven times that Jesus steps into public view and he makes this climatic declaration. Crying out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It was the moment of climax when he would proclaim and declare this. And it's in this moment of climax that there are many responses that are that are resulting and that ensue from it. But before we hear the responses, I want us to just take a moment to see Six different implications that come from this declaration of Christ being 
the one whom they are to come to. This invitation, if you thirst, come to me, drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the source, as we'll see in a moment. But I I want us to move from, from some specific implications to more general implications. I want us to see first these these three. Uh, implications that really kind of highlight and, and go in depth with the richness of, of, of all the aspirations of the Feast of the Tabernacle. Because the point Christ is making is that Christ, He owns all the aspirations of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It all points to Him. It's all about Him. And He's coming and He's declaring this. And so first, the first implication I want us to see is this. In verses 37 through 39, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the feast longs for. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the feast longs for. The Feast of Tabernacles was instituted by God's command. And it was instituted to point his people to their great need for him to call them to a place of of dependence. It served as a reminder that God is the one true God who is worthy of all praise. They were to remember and they were to continually recognize that they were created and favored for the glory of God and not for their own glory. This was what the people of Israel were to remember and to recognize and why they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle. C.S. Lewis wrote accordingly in this, in this vein in Mere Christianity by saying this. The quote will be up on the screen for you. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A a duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated, celebrated this, celebrated God's bountiful provision through harvest and sustaining them with with food, and and it placed the need for rain front and center before the people that, that they would depend upon God and that they would trust in Him. Their visible action of prayer lived out before God's people revealed a deeper, much greater need that went far beyond the physical provision of rain. It revealed their need for the living water that Christ was offering. He was offering them living water. That which could quench the thirst of their souls. It also served as a reminder of their forefathers' journey in the wilderness. When God gave his people water from the rock through Moses and Aaron, Jesus is declaring that he is that eschatological rock, the one that they are hoping for and looking to for salvation. He is the one from which the water they need comes. Revelation 22.1 
Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Speaking of Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the feast longs for because and because of this, we see that Jesus is the spiritual rock from which life giving water flows to every believer. Look in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is, that last phrase, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Earlier, we, we, we looked at uh, the passage from Numbers 20, where God provided water for his people through Moses and Aaron. I want you to see how Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians applies that text, that passage. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, Jesus is the spiritual rock from which life-giving water flows to every believer. This was significant declaration for him to make in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the background of this festival. You see how he's claiming to be the very source, the very provision of God for his people. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 58, 11, And the Lord will continually guide you. And satisfy your desire in scorched places. That is, he will bring water to the dry land and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We see this answered in Christ in the promise of provision of rivers of living water flowing from the believer's innermost being. As the water flowed from the sacrificial rock altar, symbolizing God's provision for his people in the temple, and they're crying out to him for physical sustenance, so is Christ, the spiritual rock, providing thirst-quenching, life-giving water for eternal spiritual satisfaction. It is Christ who provides the life-satisfying, soul-satisfying water that quenches the thirst of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The third implication in verse 37, again, drawing from the temple and the scene at the the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is the new temple. We see this in verse 37. He's the new temple. He's the presence of God among his people. Standing in the midst of the temple on the last and great day of the feast, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Using the picture of water being poured out, saying he is the one who satisfies the deepest need. In so doing, he claims to be the sum total of all of their worship activity. It must all be directed to him. This is in line with John 1.14 in, in the prologue where John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling. The incarnate word, God the Son, stepped down, becoming the word. And he dwelt among his people. He made his dwelling here. You see, the presence of God, the glory of God, walking among his people. No longer is his presence refined or confined to the temple. Now his presence has come in bodily form and he is here. That's the point. Jesus has already said it in 2.19 as well, where the religious leaders challenged him. And he said, they said, what sign do you give us? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they sneered at him. The point is that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the feasts long for. Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. I want us to see more general, but more specific for us today. We see the kind of the background of, we see the background of how it, how Jesus's statement confronts those who are there in the temple. But I want us to also see some implications that we need to walk away with today from what Jesus is saying in the context of this passage. And so the fourth implication is simply this. Jesus is the source of eternal life. He is the source of eternal life. In verses 37 and in 38, he says, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, it's the call to recognize one's own spiritual need for salvation from the depth of sin and hopelessness, recognizing that we truly cannot save ourselves. We must come to the place of of understanding that that sin has tainted us, it has stained us, and it has condemned us. And because sin has done that, we are no good before God. We cannot claim to be good. And since we cannot claim to be good, we need one to save us. And what he's saying here, anyone who thirsts, the one who thirsts is the one who recognizes that there is sin in their life, and that because of sin, they cannot come to God. They cannot save themselves. And so anyone who thirsts, the invitation then, is if you recognize that sin in your life and confess it, if you, you then come. The one who thirsts is commanded to come and drink. And notice I said commanded. It's a command here in verses 37 and 38 Uh, or, or here in verse 37, come to me, drink. Those who thirst and recognize their sin, here is the only answer for the dilemma of man's problem. It is to come to Christ and to drink of what he offers, this living water. He has the water that will quench the thirst of, of the soul. And so Jesus is the giver of living water. And the living water that he gives is spiritual drink that satisfies the eternal longing of every sin-famished soul. Can you imagine the scene? People are thirsting for physical water. They've ascended and descended the hill, the Temple Mount, seven times that day. And it's hot. And as they see this backdrop of of the water pouring right 
happening before their eyes. And Jesus stands in the midst of the temple. He stands and he cries loudly. If anyone's thirsty, come. Taken together with Jesus' words to the woman at the well earlier in chapter 4, where Jesus has already spoken of himself as being the source of this eternally satisfying water. John 4, 14, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This author of living water, as in John 4, to the woman at the well, is the offer to find true joy and satisfaction in knowing the one true God. This is the same offer that's extended to each of us today. Those who thirst, he's saying, come and drink. If you're here this morning and you recognize the sin in your life, recognize that you don't truly know Christ, maybe there's sin that's gripped you. Jesus is saying, come and drink. Come, have faith. Come and drink. The fifth implication is this, that Jesus' glorification is the gospel. I want to explain that and unpack that. If you look in verse 39, it's really the last phrase in verse 39. Just after, for the Spirit was not yet given... Here it is, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus' glorification is the gospel because Jesus' glorification speaks about his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to the Father. It's the gospel because it's the good news. And if you and I don't, continually place that before us, if we're not continually reminding ourselves that this is the good news, then we will lose our love and our affection for the Lord. We must continually remind ourselves and not forget that this truly is the good news. It must remain center stage in our lives because it it constantly and continually reminds us of God's grace in accomplishing a work that we never could accomplish. What do you mean he accomplished a work that we never could accomplish? Well, his his death on the cross, his death on the cross speaks of his his substitutionary atonement by which Christ became the substitute who satisfied the wrath of of God in my stead. And it wasn't simply canceling sin as if expiation occurred. No, he removed sin. He propitiated sin. He took it out of the way. He suffered and he died and he paid the wrath of God so that we might not have to pay. So that is what his death on the cross accomplished. And then his burial. His burial was his sentence to death under the wrath of God. Where he felt, get this, he felt the full weight of God's justice and condemnation against us. Christ himself took the death blow that every one of us deserved. He took the death blow that was ours because of sin. 
and he died and he buried it. His resurrection from the grave, his victory over sin and death, whereby he powerfully and eternally conquered our adversary, Satan. Jesus eliminated the sting of death, granting privilege uh, of, of eternal life and of eternally abiding in his presence to all those who thirsts, who come, and who drink, and thereby have faith. See why this is good news? He died on the cross. He was buried, and he resurrected from the grave. And because he resurrected from the grave by his power and by his authority, he then ascended to heaven, and it completed his journey, and he was glorified. And by his power, when he rose, he ascended, which brings the final implication, number six, and it's this. His glorification has ushered in the gift of the Holy Spirit through which everyone who believes experiences rivers of living water. Jesus isn't saying here that the believer is the source of living water, as some might take verse 38 to mean. Instead, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is the living water, and he, the Holy Spirit, is given to all believers upon their belief in Christ. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't yet active in his ministry and in the ministry of those who truly believed. Instead, after his ascension to the Father, we now learn and we see of the full sense of the Holy Spirit's ministry and indwelling his continued presence in the life of all who believe. So Jesus is saying in verse 38, get this, From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This means as believers, we're not to grow stale and stagnant. Like ponds, always taking in water, but never giving out water. Like the Dead Sea that has the... The, the Jordan River running down into it, but it never sends any out. And everything that's in the Dead Sea is, is dead. We, we as believers are not to be like that. The call of all who believe in him is to be a channel of blessing through which the living water of Christ flows. This happens through the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We are to bring the living water to thirsty souls, brothers and sisters. We who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are to take this living water and allow it to flow into the lives of others. Those who are not yet converted to Christ, those who have not yet believed upon the gospel, those who do not know it's the truly, the good news And not only that, we are to be the body of Christ made of various parts and members who are ministering to one another. This is the river of life flowing out of the believer. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. All who are true disciples of Christ have rivers of living water flowing from your innermost being. I want to point out, it doesn't say that you have to draw the water out. 
it, it's not to be drawn. It's, it flows out, right? There's, there's a reason why he speaks of it flowing out. The Holy Spirit within the believer's life fills the believer and the rivers of living water then flow out from the life of the believer as we walk with God, as we walk according to his will. One humble man prayed, Lord, I can't hold much, but help me to overflow lots. (laughs) That would be our prayer, such a simple prayer but profoundly truthful. Help us to overflow lots. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts which you have given us to minister the gospel to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts you have given us and the testimony of your gospel and the transformation that you've worked in our lives. Help us to speak that so that rivers of life flow to thirsty souls of those who are not yet converted, who do not yet know the gospel of Christ. As we asked last week, who are we to withhold Christ from others? This is the challenge of scene one, verses 37 through 39. I wanted to just quickly walk through scene two and scene three making some practical observations that kind of help us to see the invitation of Christ in scene one and then the response in scenes two and three. Scene two is the response to Christ in verses 40 through 44. There are three responses to Christ. We stated last week regarding the first one, when, when the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, people are divided in their response. Verse 40 and 41 show us this. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Verse 41. Others were saying, this is the chief priest. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Three different responses here. The first response, they say this certainly is the prophet. We saw this view several weeks ago after Jesus fed the 5,000 with loaves and fish. They wanted to come and they wanted to take him and make him king by force. They wanted to shape his messianic destiny. This was a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. And it's one that's similar today. It's similar in that People today still come to Jesus on their own terms and not believing who he has revealed himself to be according to his scripture. We still see this problem. We still see this in people coming, wanting to approach Jesus in their own way with their own presuppositions and not wanting to submit, truly submit their lives and surrender to Christ as Lord. Yet that is the call for the life of the believer, that we surrender to him as Lord. We cannot call ourselves Christians if we are not disciples of Christ, if we are not surrendered to him as Lord of all. The second response, others were saying this is the Christ. They were believing. Those who were earlier refraining from speaking, they've been emboldened by Jesus's proclamation and they've truly believed in him. They've heard the words of Christ and now they have said, yes, this is the Christ. And they have gone out proclaiming. 
they're willing to take a stand and say, we believe he is the Christ. But then there is also the response of the third group. The third response, surely the Christ isn't going to come from Galilee, is he? In verse 41 and 42, hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. You know, these are the ones who are skeptics, probably the Jerusalemites from verse 25 that we saw last week. You know, the reality is it doesn't matter how much evidence supports Christ as Messiah. They simply won't believe. Their hearts are hardened. Their eyes are shut. Their eyes are veiled. And until the Lord opens their eyes, they will never believe. They're even antagonistic toward the gospel message. We see these same three responses even today as we encounter others and share the gospel of Christ with others. But it doesn't mean that we should withhold Christ. We should be faithful in sharing Christ and letting the river of living water flow from within. I wonder which, which one of these responses do we find ourselves in this morning? Those who want to shape and fit Christ into our own box? Uh, Those who truly believe and are ready to proclaim and to share. Or maybe those who are skeptics. It doesn't matter what evidence is is presented. We we just won't believe. Maybe we're too concerned with seeking the pleasures of this life and not seeking the pleasure of God. We're so consumed by our own pursuits and our own desires that we're having too much fun. Let me encourage you that there is no joy greater than knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him. There is no satisfaction greater than having the thirst of our souls quenched by the offer of eternal life and by the joy of walking with Christ and knowing his provision. The second observation in verses 41, 42, and 44 is simply that John doesn't combat or or give a defense for their misunderstanding of of Jesus' origin. It's important for us to understand and think critically about this. It would have been easy for John to lay out a defense for his lineage, but the synoptics already do that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what John does is simply present the origin of Christ as the one who has come from God. We see in the prologue in John 1, 1 through 18. And so to miss this as some claim is to to miss the reality of of the the message that John intends to communicate about Christ and the gospel of salvation. We see at the end of John's gospel, in John 20, 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid his hands on him. On him. Not even the officers of verse 45 in scene 3, where we see pride, prejudice, and righteous judgment in verses 45 through 52. First, we see really arrogance, haughtiness, and pride. And these are pitfalls that lead us to condemnation. And we should take note of the religious leaders and their response to Christ. Verse 47, the officers 
we need to understand that they, they, they weren't policemen. And so when the Pharisees asked them, you've not also been led astray, have you? These were men that were trained in the law. They were trained in, in understanding the truth of, of the law, and they were skilled like the religious leaders, like the priests. And their question in connection with verse 49 speaks of arrogance comparing the crowd to the second-class citizens that they look down over their noses at. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed in verse 49. Their arrogance is spoken of as they ask these questions. And in verse 48, the question that they ask Nicodemus is ironic. He is the teacher of Israel, as Jesus has already said in in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to him uh, in the garden by way of night. And in verse 48, they ask, or they state, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Showing their, showing their ignorance, showing their lack of belief, but Nicodemus himself will soon believe in Christ. In verse 52, they even say, search the scriptures and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. But again, their prejudice has blinded them. Their ignorance is revealed in their speech. Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. Nahum and Hosea probably also were from Galilee. The point is, we must guard our hearts against arrogance and haughtiness and pride and exercise patience and humility toward one another. The second observation of scene three is that righteous judgment reveals the heart of man. Righteous judgment reveals the heart of a man. This is seen in, in Nicodemus. He, he righteously states in verse 50, verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? This is him wanting to see justice carried out. What we understand is the one who is willing to do the will of God is the one who believes and follows God. It's the heart attitude of a person that determines the actions of their lives. I think that's important for us to recognize. This is something that the parents of going through uh, shepherding a child's heart have been really, I mean, it's been drilled in for those parents. But hear that again. It's the heart attitude of a person that determines the actions of their lives. It's what we truly are in our heart that determines how we act and interact with others. And for Nicodemus, here is one who's wanting to see justice enacted, but the religious leaders will have none of it. The third observation I want us to see in scene three is simply this. Jesus spoke with the authority of heaven. He spoke with the authority of heaven. In verses 45 and 46, the officers couldn't seize him because they said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Jesus' words powerfully seized the hearts and confounded the minds of those officers, of those religious leaders, those Levites. And the point is, when we share the gospel with others, we must recognize, too, that the power of the gospel is in the sharing of the word of Christ. We must be faithful to share the word of Christ. 
The invitation of the gospel is seen in verses 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The invitation to approach Christ as the only one who can give spiritual drink to satisfy the eternal thirst craving of our souls is for all who thirst this morning. And those who drink are partaking of the gift of Christ through faith in him alone. Jesus Christ is God's provision for eternal life. God has revealed and made only one way for salvation. It's through Christ. Let me ask you this morning, which one of those responses fit our lives? Believer, are you being a channel through which the rivers of living water are flowing to others? This morning, maybe maybe the question you need to hear is, have you drank from the fountain of living water? Do you sense a thirst this morning within your soul to know the God who created you and the Christ who has redeemed you? I want to close this in prayer. And I want to ask you to respond in a couple of ways. Number one, if if you've recognized that you've not been being the uh, channel of living water to others, ask God how he might use you to be that channel, how he might use your gifts how he might use the unique way that he has gifted you to impact the lives of others. This morning, if you have never drank from the fountain of living water and your soul thirsts for this living water, I want to I be able to speak with you. If you are willing to come, if you are willing to drink, I would like to speak with you and share more about this gospel truth. And this morning, if you need to repent, I want to challenge you as the word of God is spoken and you hear that it not fall on deaf ears or a hard heart, but that it fall on fertile soil. What what is it that God is calling you to repent of? These are the ways for us to respond this morning. And I pray that you will respond as the Lord leads. Let me pray. Father. Your word is truth. Your gospel offers us life. Where else will we go? Where else can we go? We cannot flee anywhere from your spirit, from your presence. And so, Lord, as we contemplate your word this morning, I pray that you would strengthen us to respond God, that you would work with our will, strengthen us to walk with you, as Philippians 2 says. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us to be those rivers of living water, channels of blessing to others by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?